a listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what is likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name's Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. Now, this week's topic, Keith, is one I can definitely get behind, reality telly, but more specifically how the medium could be dulling our ability to think critically and how citizens are effectively being controlled by it. It's all explored in a recent article by John Whitehead titled Humilitainment, How to Control the Citizenry Through Reality TV Distractions. Pretty serious stuff, Keith. First off, what is this term? Humilitainment? Did I say it right? I think you have, yes. I've not heard of it until I came across this article. So it says that it's a coined term by media scholars Brad Waite and Sarah Booker. And humilitainment, so it's obviously humiliation and entertainment run together, refers to the tendency for viewers to take pleasure in someone else's humiliation, suffering and pain. I mean, it sounds fair. I think that's what reality TV is half the time. Yeah. So humilitainment largely explains not only why American TV watchers are so fixated on reality TV programming, but how American citizens largely insulated from what is really happening in the world around them by layers of technology, entertainment and other distractions are being programmed to accept the government's brutality, surveillance and dehumanising treatment as things are happening to other people. Mm. Yeah, I'd say this article is pretty scathing of our reality TV viewing habits. What does the author say is then happening because of this? You just touched on it. Could you expand a little? Yeah, so it means that people are becoming desensitised to what is going on. And I guess they look at everything as a form of entertainment and they're disengaged from what's happening. I should point out that this writer, John Whitehead, is associated with the Future of Freedom Foundation, which is in Virginia in the United States which is either on the extreme left or the extreme right, depending on your point of view, but it's libertarian. (laughs) Yes. It's very worried about government control. Mm. And what it's seeking to do is to rediscover the role of the individual vis-a-vis government. And so what I find fascinating, and of course, this is the value of doing Global Truths podcasts, that we can look at subjects which are not going to be covered by mainstream media because this is critical of mainstream media. That's right. This is a person who's very critical about what goes on In the world of reality TV, he says, much like the fabricated universe in Peter Weir's 1998 film, The Truman Show, in which a man's life is the basis for an elaborately staged television show aimed at selling products and procuring ratings, the political scene in the United States has developed over the years into a carefully calibrated exercise in how you manipulate, polarise, propagandise and control a population. Mm. Now, of course, depending on whether you're left or right, there'll be bits there that you think, oh, well, I know what he's referring to. But obviously, this is the problem that we've now got, the way that we get talked into going to war. I'm thinking particularly of 2003 and the invasion of Iraq, which turned out to be such a disaster. We had all these demonstrations opposed to that, but the governments in Britain and the United States and Australia still went ahead. And the people who campaigned against that were proven right in the long term. But many of the people who shape opinions were 
willing to go along with what the government was saying. Yeah, Whitehead doesn't just blame reality TV in this article. He thinks politics have also been influenced by the medium. How so? Well, I think what is happening is that politics is more about entertainment, it's about distraction, rather than getting down into the details of what's going on. One of my favourite examples in this context, it's not in this article, but I think it's a good example, the number of journalists who will ask, say, somebody who was at a train crash, and how did you feel Right. When you saw what happened. In the old days, you'd be asking for the facts. Yes. Now we've moved away from that and we want to get an emotional reaction. Now, the reason we do that is that emotions sell TV programs or radio programs or whatever, not cold, hard facts. People get bored with those, but they want an element of emotion. And so, although I agree with what John Whitehead is saying, he has to recognise that the problem for mainstream media is that they do have to attract people into watching the programs. So, yes, we have to convert everything into reality TV, including our news coverage, mm. in order to be guaranteed that people will view because we're in the business of entertaining them. On that, I um, wanted to read you a quote that caught my attention when reading this article. Whitehead says, We have become guinea pigs in a ruthlessly calculated, carefully orchestrated, chillingly cold-blooded experiment in how to control a population and advance a political agenda without much opposition from the citizenry. Pretty scathing again. What are your thoughts on that opinion? I agree with it. And I, um, one of my standard talks is why pinups are more important than police. Okay. So you've got, in political science, you've got the basic problem of how do you control citizens? It's not a new issue. So the Romans had it 2,000 years ago. And the Romans came up with this phrase, bread and circuses, keep people fed, and you keep them entertained, and you keep them out of politics. Right. It will make sense. And if you look at what's going on today, I come across young people because I, I mix a lot with university students, so much alienation from the political system amongst young people. And this feeling that politicians are corrupt, well, there's certainly an element of that, but just the feeling that, you know, it's, it's all a waste of time. Indeed, this article actually comes up with a lovely phrase from John Lennon of the Beatles, living is easy with eyes closed. <laughs> Yeah, keep your eyes shut to everything. That's right. And everything's fine then. And everything's fine. Yeah. And providing you've still got a house and uh, food and get education, whatever, basically that's all you need. For me, the worry is that we are confronted by long-term big challenges. Climate change is obviously a standard example of that. And for that, you've got to have the general public willing to be involved in the changes that are required to save the planet from climate change. And if people are just going to go through life with their eyes closed, either you've got to work very hard to manipulate them or you've got to work very hard to educate them and get them engaged. Whitehead claims even the positives out of the media's influence, so things that we're really used to now, tolerance, anti-racism, anti-discrimination, that he thinks they're having negative impacts. What is he worried about here? I think what he's worrying about now is the whole issue of political correctness and the culture war stuff. And... Because you want to be sheltered from the world, you don't want to be offended. Mm -hmm. Salman Rushdie, who was recently the subject of an attack in the United States, talks about the fact that sometimes people have to be offended. He didn't set out to offend Muslims with his novel, but clearly he did do. And in effect, it's a reaffirmation that perhaps we do need to offend people. If you go back to the early suffragettes, so one of my mentors was Dame Kathleen Courtney. And she began her life, woman of independent means, as they used to say in Victorian times. <laughs> so she got a, an Oxford education, didn't have to really work for a living. She had family wealth behind her. And she was an early English feminist. 
right? So we're talking about somebody who was operating before World War I. But if you think about how those feminists operated in the campaign for the rights to vote, you know, they tried to push the young Winston Churchill under a railway train. They put a bomb through, I think, the letterbox of David Lloyd George. You had one tragic case of a woman who threw herself in front of the king's horse mm. at a race. Now, if you were a particularly conservative man, you'd be offended by that. And yet it was that element of offence that brought about change. And so you've got to have this element of offence just to trigger people's thinking process. But if you're growing up in a society where, oh, no, everybody's got to be very nice and very kind to each other and to be sheltered from the rest of the world, as John Lennon would say, you keep your eyes closed all the time, mm. you will then be offended by what goes on and, and you demand the government protect you from all of this nasty stuff. You don't want to hear about people suffering. You just want to be entertained. You don't want to be troubled by other people's troubles. And so you will not, therefore, get so much political change because people just don't want to hear about it. They don't want to be bothered about it, etc. So for me, it's really fascinating how this guy is focusing on this whole issue that we're, we're doing our best for the children. We're trying to create a nice, peaceful society. We mean well. Yes. But we're actually ruining their minds. So when I lecture at university, I have to go through giving trigger warnings. Yes. Sort of saying, it's you know, everywhere this, now. this is a bit grim. Yes. You get it on the ABC, I notice. There are now also publishing warnings that some of the footage is going to be unpleasant, etc. We're creating a society which is, I think, very fragile because it's trying to be so safe and secure in every context. Thanks for joining us this week on Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter as we discuss reality TV and its effects on how we see the wider world. Keith, this article is very strongly in opposition to how we're consuming news as well, opting to watch TV and listen to commentators rather than actually reading and investigating the story ourselves. What sort of impact is this having on how we then engage with the world? I think obviously it's the whole issue that we're separating ourselves off from the world. But I think also it's a general dumbing down. Mm. And again, I notice this because of, I do a lot of talkback radio, et cetera, and I can tell from some of the questions that people are not keeping themselves well informed or that they're getting information from Facebook. That's the worry. And, and if you look at what's going on now with all the so-called fake news, mm. a lot of that is coming out of social media. Do you think, though, I'm a young person and I engage with media of young people and aimed at young people, and a lot of the commentary around the news and the news cycle is is to actually actively disengage. It says, you know, give yourself a break from all the horrible things <laughs> going on. In my mind, I go, oh, you know, I can't. I'm a journalist. I work <laughs> in it. I don't have that option. But I guess playing the other side here a little bit, is it wrong of us to want to disengage and to just enjoy the lives that we have and control the things that we can control in front of us? Well, we're back to an old Classical Greek issue from Aristotle, which is balance. Nice. You know, yep. <laughs> you know we haven't really improved much in 3,000 years. Mm. So obviously I don't want people to completely shut themselves off mm. from the world. But at the same time, I don't want people to be thinking solely about bad news. There's a lot of good news that going on, and we try to cover some of that in this series. I think I've got to say that with the advantage of moving from broadcasting to narrow casting, mm. it is possible to get alternative ways of looking at the world. So broadcasting, when I was growing up, you had the BBC and then in the mid-50s, we then got commercial British television. You had a handful of newspapers. So the idea in broadcasting, and it's even incorporated in the name of the BBC, 
is that you have a small number of stations transmitting to a large number of people. We have now moved from broadcasting to narrowcasting. So with narrowcasting, you have a huge number of stations transmitting to a small number of people. So we have a niche audience for this series. There'd be other podcasts with their own niche audience. And it means, therefore, that you can actually become really specialized in your consumption of news. Now, this is the value, it seems to me, of this new era of narrow casting, that you aren't just dominated by a handful of media outlets like the BBC or CNN or Fox, and that you can now, through the use of the internet, you can actually find alternative sources of information. So ironically, we are in a situation of being better informed if we want to get off our backside and go looking for it. Yeah. This is the irony of the media. Again, reminds me back to the old debates we were having about Google, that it was going to transform the world of learning and the internet was going to transform the world of learning. People were going to be able to watch unlimited amounts of Shakespeare, etc. But where do you make money on the internet is pornography and pop music. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's the risk. You know, we, we've got the opportunity, mm. but we always pass up on the opportunity to make the most of it for good purposes. And we just ruin ourselves with obsession with pornography or pop music or whatever. Yeah, the latest gossip of the day. A lot of people might not realise corporations own most news sources. What impact does that have then on the stories we're seeing on the news if we sit down to watch a bulletin at night? So there's a high degree, I think, of self-censorship. So there are certain stories that will not appear in certain media outlets because the media outlets own the company which is caught up in the scandal. So you've got an element of censorship. So you are not getting necessarily well informed because of the corporate interest. So yes, that is a real problem. But again, I think we can get around it by having so many of these alternative media outlets. If you look back at what's now on YouTube, which itself is becoming, I've got to say, more prone to censorship. But it means that if you've got yourself a little camera, you can now broadcast directly. Mm. You could have your own TV channel. Well, everyone has a podcast these days Everybody as well. has a podcast, you know? yes, absolutely. And I've got them. One of my colleagues has a child who's aged, I think, five, and she oh. makes YouTube videos. Yes, it's such a thing with the kids. <laughs> they love it. They've taught this in schools yes. now. And so she takes these photos and she then links them all up and makes a little video. Yeah. It's quite amazing. It is. It's fascinating. But do you think then that's watering down, you know, we've seen this with the culture wars and people able to access very fringe views, but then take it as fact. Are we at risk then of disinformation in that case? If we're not taking it from a centralised source or a government-funded source like the ABC, for example, are we at risk then of getting the wrong information or is it just alternative information? It is alternative information. I wouldn't have 100% confidence in the ABC, but I do watch Media Watch, yes. which is willing to take on the ABC for yes. its own inadequate coverage, yes. as well as the commercial outlets. My view is always you read widely and you read critically. And I think you also need to have what's called a knowledge base. In other words, you spend a lot of your time keeping yourself well-informed about what's going on. Malcolm Gladwell, the American writer, talks about 10,000 hours. So that's basically the amount of time that a child was spent at school. So I've done my 10,000 hours in international politics and international economics and international law. I wouldn't comment at all on sport because I know nothing about sport, know nothing about alcohol, mm -hmm. couldn't comment about the latest wine or whatever. So I know what I know and I know what I don't know. There is also a link to this. It's not in this article, but it's reminded me of the Dunning-Kruger effect 
almost 30 years ago, a person went into a bank in Pittsburgh in the United States and he had smeared lemon juice over his face, Mm -hmm. held up the bank, and the police caught him fairly quickly thereafter. And he said, how were you able to get me? Because I'm invisible. I've got lemon juice on my face. And two sociologists and psychologists, Dunning and Kruger, I think both of whom are still alive, they read about this story of somebody who was so stupid He didn't know how stupid he was. Mm -hmm. And so they talk really about a a spectrum. At one end of the spectrum, you've got people who know nothing about a subject but are unaware of that because they lack even the basic knowledge to know that they don't know. So that's at one end of the spectrum. People are too stupid to know that they're stupid. (laughs) In the middle is where hopefully I am, where you know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And then at the other end, you've got the people who know so much about a subject that they talk over the heads of their audiences. And for me, they're the experts on climate change. We lost the climate change debate in this country because scientists were talking over the heads of the audience. The scientists figure, well, I know all about climate change, therefore you must do as well. So that's Dunning and Kruger. At one end, you've got people too stupid to know that they're stupid, and you've got the others who are too smart to realise that not everybody is as smart as they are. In my view, you've got to be in the middle. So you've got to know what you don't know don't feel obliged to comment on everything. And that's, that's another problem for politicians. And I have sympathy for politicians. You know, the number of times that you get politicians who get doorstopped, to use the phrase from the trade, they get doorstopped and get asked the question, which is not their portfolio. And they really ought to be saying, I don't know. Mm. But no politician can afford to say, I don't know. No, that's right. So they, they get up to express an opinion, even on something that they clearly don't know anything about. Keith, to wrap us up, this article is pretty damning and kind of hints that everything's a big ploy to dumb down the citizenry at the end of the day with entertainment, with reality television, with the way we consume news. Is this true? And if so, what do we do? Well, he's a great admirer of George Orwell. In fact, he's written a novel regarding George Orwell as well. And George Orwell lived a very short life, but was very productive with particularly 1984. So George Orwell was talking about how to write clearly And I think one of our problems at the moment is academics can't write clearly. They write with jargon. I think there's a lot we could do just by going back to the old essays written by George Orwell and see the advice that he gave to writers, which would also apply to broadcasters, to make sure that we communicate clearly to the average person. It's given us something to think about, for sure, myself included. Thank you, Keith, for your time. And I will see you next week. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr Keith Souter and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nikolic. Listener.